Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, philosophers, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is Stephanie Feldman. She's the co-editor, along with Nathaniel Popkin, of Who Will Speak for America? Tens of millions of Americans have spent the time since November 2016 reacting to a cascade of horrific tweets, to affronts to our sense of decency and to our American selves, to attacks on our cherished democratic institutions and our social fabric. Who Will Speak for America brings together 40 novelists, essayists, poets, and graphic artists, among them immigrants and refugees, men and women of color, gay and trans people, Christians, Jews, and Muslims, to take a long view, to take a step back from the 24-hour news cycle in order to process our turbulent political times. They imagine a just future for the country, and with resilience, bravado, insight, and beauty, they ponder who we are as Americans and who will speak for America. Stephanie Feldman is the author of the novel The Angel of Losses, a Barnes & Noble Discover Great New Writer selection and winner of the Crawford Fantasy Award. Her stories and essays have appeared in Asimov's Electric Literature, Main Review, The Rumpus, and Volume Number 1, Brooklyn. I give you Stephanie Feldman. Stephanie, welcome to the podcast. It's so rare that somebody's actually in this like bunker like recording <laughs> studio in my house. It's very cozy. It is. I mean, it is. It's dark, but it's kind of, uh, it is, it is. I wish it was sort of, it was made not with video in mind, but definitely. Oh, audio. So but you do have that little camera peeking out of the hole in the wall, which I is do. not disconcerting at all. It's very NSA like. <laughs> right. Hey, if, this is uh, NSA. This is not a. Um, this book, while it is a resistance book, there's no need to track us down. Right. So you wrote, you edited and a book along with Nathaniel Popkin. I'm holding it in my hand. Who will speak for America? This was a book. It's part of a broader movement, right? The, the Writers Resist movement. It began that way. So Nathaniel and I first met when we organized the Writers Resist protest here in Philadelphia, along with Alicia Askenaz, who's a local poet. And um, that event was, or that effort, I should say, was spearheaded by um, Penn America and a poet named Aaron Ballou up in New York. And it became this international day of protest um, in the, I believe it was the weekend before Trump's inauguration. So events were held all across the country with writers gathering to read um, either legacy texts or their own material, but to speak out against the coming Trump administration, um, which at that point, we did not know exactly what was going to happen. But we had some pretty good ideas from his campaign. And um, I think especially on everybody's mind then was freedom of expression and attacks on the press. And so Writers Resist was an effort to um, push back against that. It's interesting because I'm guessing, I mean, when I, I remember watching the election returns and like most people, I was surprised. And, and when people say that everybody got it wrong, I mean, well, not, I mean, it was all within the margin of error. 80,000 votes. It's, yeah. it's in three states. It's a. What by contemporary standards, a landslide the other way. I mean, a big electoral mm -hmm. college win for Hillary Clinton and a big popular. I mean, I think Hillary Clinton got more votes than any candidate except Obama 2008 or something. I mean, she got a lot of votes. She did. Yeah. When you think about all the different ways that this could have gone differently, <laughs> when even like um, the gutting of the Voting Rights Act, 
if that hadn't happened, things could have turned out differently. Obviously, Russian interference is still something everyone's exploring, but what kind of a difference did that make? No collusion. Right, no collusion. <laughs> oh my goodness. But I'm th- it just strikes me that, so you organized a, a pretty large protest event. Yes. In like basically two months time. I mean, from, from the time, so first off, y- y- my guess is you're not imagining the first Wednesday in November that you're going to have to be part of a protest movement. <laughs> no. So there, it just strikes me that there's a lot of emotions going, happening in between, I mean, in, in just a short span of time. Yeah. And the organizing, you know, I can't remember the exact timeline, but it would be even shorter than two months because I think everyone was reeling um, after the election. Writers Resist was not born until a little while after. And we organized very quickly in Philadelphia. I think the three of us who organized sort of looked around independently. We didn't know each other at that point. And we said, well, this thing is happening and there has to be something in Philadelphia. I mean, put aside the fact that Philadelphia is a a major city with a great literary community. It's also, you know, the birthplace of the United States. And uh, we were so grateful that we were able to do the event on Independence Mall and that there were so many great texts from Philadelphia history that we could use texts that had been written in Philadelphia or delivered in Philadelphia from uh, Franklin Roosevelt's speech on economic equality to Allen Ginsberg's poem um, about Earth Day and the environment and all the way back to Octavius Cotto, who now has a statue in front of City Hall, who wrote a petition. I believe it was called a petition on behalf of colored people. Um, that was in the late 1700s. So um, we really try to draw on Philadelphia history and what that has to offer us today. Do you think that the organizing of the event itself, right, where you had a bunch of writers gathered to read text and then a subsequent book which followed, how much of that early organizing, was it therapeutic? I mean, in a sense of the anxiety, the angst, the sort of sorrow, I mean, was it helpful to channel that into something constructive? Absolutely. And the event itself was so cathartic. You know, going in, I wasn't really sure what the outcome would be. I know it was, I knew it was good to bring people together and it was good to celebrate these, um, what we came to think of as resistance texts. I did not predict what the emotion in the room would be. We had 35 readers and we had over 300 attendees. And it was a really powerful moment and it was a constructive, positive moment. You know, people had been so upset and scared and angry, but this was a time to celebrate, um, not just American values, but that we were still all together fighting for them. One of the participants afterwards said to me, I'd never felt more patriotic in my whole life than I did today. And that was a spirit that we wanted to carry on in this book and that there really is power in coming together and speaking and listening and uh, affirming our beliefs. It's interesting. I heard somebody quote William F. Buckley actually recently saying that he's as patriotic as any American, but his patriotism doesn't include an ounce of nationalism because he thought nationalism is just so un-American that this sort of blood and soil, the tribal sort of, that's not, that the American ideal is something that was meant to be ever evolving, inclusive, and not this. In fact, you talk about in the in your intro to the collection of literary works, this, this sort of revolutionary spirit of, you know, moving away from certain trends of old Europe and, and having this liberative practice. And is that, I mean, that I get that sense from the the literature in the book. I mean, you have this sort of refreshingly 
non-nationalist patriotism because it seems like in, in modern discourse right a patriotism is now equated with nationalism which seems to be it real odds with the the dna uh, you know of 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 the, of the origins of the country right yeah absolutely i mean america is a country that is built on ideas it's not built on an ethnic identity or a religion it's about um democracy it's about personal freedom and it's about pluralism uh, which is something that gets lost and i i actually just saw a cartoon that was talking about the differences between nationalism and patriotism and it's something that has also come to mind when we watch the nfl protests that there's somehow something unpatriotic about wanting your country to be better or something unpatriotic about dissent i think america's all about dissent and even in this book i I think of this collection. These are people who are all speaking as Americans. They don't necessarily agree with each other on everything or have the same priorities, um, but they're all coming to the table with an American viewpoint. It's so interesting. I, I think of like the flag. My friend Mark Oppenheimer is a journalist. He's written for the New York Times, LA Times, the host of a great podcast called Unorthodox. And he, he wrote this piece a couple of years ago. He says, look, you know, I live in New Haven uh, and I love flags on July 4th. But as a Jew, an American Jew, I'm really wary of flags a lot of other days because see, there are certain days when I like it, like Memorial Day or July 4th. But other days, it becomes this sort of cheapest form of identity politics. I heard Howard Stern interview Jerry Seinfeld and he said, I don't understand why people like wear the flag. Like I've never, he's like, I used to tease Jay Leno when he'd wear that American flag pen. He said, Jay, that's really courageous of you to take that stand. <laughs> <laughs> but this is what happens in like the NFL protests, right? This is the here people are actually protesting for what they see as American ideals, you know, equal treatment under the law. This is really you know, one of the fundamental things. And the flag becomes this thing. What well, it gets this life of its own, you know, and somebody like Donald Trump, who I mean, I can't remember in my history a president. I don't think I can remember that, that was just so allergic to democratic ideals. I mean, just indifferent, ignorant, allergic. I mean, all at once. Uh, yeah, I don't even know where to start with his psychology. I mean, I, I really he has turned me into more of an armchair psychologist than I've ever been trying to figure out what's going on in his head. But um, the American flag remind, reminds me of a piece from the book, a poem by Cynthia Dewey Oka. And I just heard her read it in New York. And she is um, came to the U.S. as a refugee from Indonesia. And she said, it's, this is not in the poem, but when she spoke, she said that her relationship with America is complicated and every day she has to wake up and choose to love America. And in her poem, she describes a time when she was traveling to an Airbnb um, with her son, who's Indonesian and Vietnamese, and her husband, who's um, Puerto Rican. And they're, and you know, the Poconos are, it's pretty remote and it's dark and they get to their Airbnb and there's a big American flag out and they get really nervous. They're supposed to be staying in this, I think like a smaller house on the property and they sneak into the house and they barricade the door because this is after Trump and they don't know what that American flag means. Like they fear that it means that the person who lives there is not going to be happy to see them showing up in the dark late at night. Yeah. I mean, yeah, because it, it, it sometimes the flag, right, is, is, for some people, it, it has this jingoistic kind of, I mean, which is tragic, right? I mean, it's just a tragic thing that you have a symbol that should really convey the opposite of those things that's been used, you know, to these ends. I, I, a friend of mine who's been on the podcast a few times, uh, Melissa Phoebus, wrote this fascinating essay where she talks about, she teaches at a college in New Jersey, not far from New York City. It's in a red district in New Jersey. And she talks about going as a teacher 
the day after the election and how basically she's it's very interesting because she talks about how most of her students Trump won the straw poll at her college and but most of the students she really feels a deep connection to that she's taught them about things like feminism intersectionality without even needing to use the lingo she just you know artfully teaches literature and has found this students receptive to different points of view in their own but she did this exercise that I thought was amazing she sat with her creative writing class and there's like 15 kids in the class and she asked them okay I want you to think of somebody that's different than you uh, you know and then somebody that's very close a child that you care about and I want you to list the things you'd want for this country for them what kind of country would you want for each of them and she said there were probably a couple of people that voted for Trump in the room but their lists were well everyone in the in the room had such a generous and uplifting list and then she said that you know they could feel free to talk to her about the election afterwards because they there was and they, but they were, I thought that that was a really interesting kind of confessional about the challenge of being a teacher right and and not being so ideological that you're not contributing to the free thinking of your students and yet also needing to communicate values because there's no such thing as value neutral education right i mean any any education is value laden by how you score tests by how you make classroom rules and things like this so that i mean that was just, it's just a great essay that like I, I i that every academic i feel like should read in this political politically difficult age range and also she's thinking about her students of color who are in the class and um I think there were only a few of them. I think it was a majority white class from America correctly and not putting a burden on them to teach and not have finding a way to have this conversation without othering them or making their classroom experience more uncomfortable. Yeah. And that that's, I mean, that's always the challenge, right? Like to sort of not to give voice to people that are in a situation that where they're uniquely marginalized and yet not othering them in that right which is easy to do that like all right tell us what oppression feels like (laughs) here we go yeah put somebody on display that's actually i mean this is another topic but i teach creative writing and there's a lot of conversation about the creative creative writing workshop and culturally how it is very white and what it feels like for students of color in the class and different styles and traditions of creative writing that maybe the traditional fiction workshop has learned to shut down because it's not correct and how to negotiate that as a teacher. How do you negotiate that? That's a good question. <laughs> well, I try, what I'm doing is I, I try to share readings that, about that very topic and try to share a diverse range of stories, a diverse stylistically, to show there's not just one kind of voice. It's funny, there's this ongoing argument uh, among writers and on Twitter about adverbs because um, the old cliche is that you should never use adverbs, adverbs that make for bad sentences. That's bad writing. Never use an adverb. And then people pushing back against it and saying, well, that, you know, leads to one very kind of voice that maybe is a very white voice. Maybe it's a very male voice. And there's not just one way to write a beautiful sentence. I'll tell you who uses adverbs quite liberally is Donald Trump. It's very, <laughs> very fantastic. He's, I always <laughs> want to say to him, like, I always want to write a letter to his staff or email, like, do you know there's something great called a thesaurus? Oh, he's a very limited so vocabulary. You could, you could look up fantastic and it would give you several other words because he's always like that guy who's looking for a more powerful word. I mean, it's fantastic. It's so, so... Tremendous. Tremendous. <laughs> like, I'm just That's like, you're and then you just disappoint it with, with these like words. I mean, it's just a fascinating. I think as you heard like recently that, that said he wants top Harvard and Yale people, so like Washington Post, Harvard and Yale degrees, and long uh, academic writing pedigrees. Although the White House staffer admitted that he has no interest in reading anything they've written. <laughs> 
who's in such a powerful position who does not have the intellectual stamina to read more than bullet points. Oh, or that they, people have to pepper stuff with like, he reads it more if Trump's name is in it. So if you, if you, I mean, Bill, Bill Gates said like he met him after the, he was elected and Gates came up, he came up to Gates. Trump hears that you disagree with Trump. You don't like what Trump's doing. And he's like, wait, aren't you Trump? <laughs> Should I say, well, Gates is, yeah, I mean, Gates doesn't agree. <laughs> I mean, to get into all the things I miss about Barack Obama, but it was so nice to have a reader as a president. And it just made you realize that this is someone who was intellectually curious and empathetic. And that's something that reading, especially reading fiction, I think teaches is empathy and how to look at the world from other points of view. And that is so necessary in a leader. And I think necessary in a citizen and a voter. Yeah, right. This is, I mean, I, what I think is tragic today in the sort of decrying of the humanities, right? We just, everything needs to be so pragmatic and STEM-oriented. No, like, we want a citizenry that is able to help to shape the course of the nation. Now, if we want an autocracy where the, na where the you know, I mean, a, a country like China doesn't need as much creativity to in educational systems because you were going to run it from top down and things, you know, like, it, but if, if you, if you want a participatory democracy, you need stu people that are empathetic, right? And, and, and de democratic discourse doesn't work unless we have facts and deliberation and, and empathetic listening so that people be, can be persuaded. I mean, all these things are, I mean, education is key for the kind of society, ideally the writers in your collection of pieces want, right? Yeah. I used to work for an organization that supports scholarship in the humanities and this has been an ongoing um, problem. Humanists trying to explain why the humanities are important. And in some ways, it is just as straightforward as you said. You know, we need to be able to write and listen and argue. We need to have a sense of history. We need to um, tell stories. We need to even, I mean, there's humanities you can apply to science because science is not objective. It's created by people in given societies. And, you know, you see that in, you know, when you see like a medical trial and it turns out, well, all of the subjects were white men of a certain size or like seatbelts. Seatbelts are made for white men. So they might not be as effective for women who might be smaller, things like that. So, um, yeah, I'm all for a resurgence of the humanities, humanities education. Here, here. <laughs> resurgence of the humanities. You know, I've, there's a piece in here by a guy, Scott Esposito. If you can keep it, it was called. I found that fascinating because he's a guy that... It's Veronica Esposito, actually. Wait, there was a change. You have an old copy of the book. Okay, Ver it's Veronica Esposito. Ver it's Veronica Esposito, yes. So okay. she, yes. Okay. Yeah, she wrote an essay about um, her time in California. Right, and she grew up there. Yeah. And she was not, I mean, she was sort of grew up in a, a time where California was pretty conservative. And you think of, is it Pete Wilson was one of the governors back then? And I mean, the whatever proposition that was very anti-immigration and, and all these things. And through this experience, she had studying the constitution. She began to read the Federalist Papers and all these things. And she found in, in, in these documents that often, I mean, it's interesting because it's often the conservatives, right? Who want to defend the founders and sort of, do hagiographic kind of, you know, they, these are, you know, heroes of our time, you know, men of, you know, great men of their day and everything. And then often the stereotypical response from the left is, no, it's America's built on such oppressive foundations because of the, the, because of look at all the illiberal things in the 18th century. And she actually teases out a sort of the seeds of liberative things in, in these 
documents, the Federalist Papers and in the Founders, and, and calls for a kind of reimagined an impassioned engagement with these texts to sort of make a love for the, the American experiment, which which things we need now with with because there's this there seems to be a complete indifference to some of the norms that make a, a liberal society possible. There, I don't know if they have these everywhere, but here, at least in the Philadelphia area, there are those. Um uh, hate has no home here signs. Yeah. Have yeah. you seen those? So those started. I'm waiting for the counter movement. Hate has a well, home there, here. <laughs> there is a counter movement because I've seen them. What do you do? It's a swastika. Well, I mean, well, that, I'll tell that... you, it's going to blow your mind. So, so there, there are these hate has no home here signs and it usually says, um, you know, it's written in different languages and it's just a way to show, I think for people to show that, um, this is a house that is not full of bigoted people, just FYI neighbors or people passing by. And now there are these, um, love lives here signs and it'll say love of God, love of the constitution. Um, I think at that point, my, I start to, you know, my brain starts to like fight back and I can't read anymore, but it, it just love, sort of love of semi-automatic weapons, love of community. And I think, wow, it's really interesting that this, these sentences, these terms have taken on such a meaning that would be very different to someone who might be reading them in a different context. So love of constitution. And I see that and I think, well, love of what, like freedom of speech, freedom of religion. And that's not what they mean when they say love of constitution. I think what they mean is love of the state, which is not the same thing. And also to see love of God and think, well, you're saying love of God, but sort of signaling that you're, I'm assuming that's a Christian, but signaling that you don't believe in, you know, welcoming the stranger. Love of community means love of our community and it's closed. It's closed community. Yeah, that's interesting because, you know, it's, there's been a lot of sociological research recently where you look at a lot of people that are that identify as sort of conservative and Christian who are in this the white non-college educated demographic of voter and a lot of them are not really observant in any significant way it's just Christian is kind of a nationality now like we're not Jewish we're not Muslim we're right. and so it, it, it this is like the whole uh, book uh, Hillbilly Elegate and the guy talking about that, that, that's just, that a lot of these people are devoid from what religion would have offered community hope for redemption some introspection I mean, but that isn't so much of the country like that. Like you, I was listening to uh, William Crystal tell a story about he was speaking at some conservative student group and he was talking about this, you know, the need to reclaim, you know, with, with all colleagues across different spectrums, the, the liberal vision and limited government and, constitu- you know, it, it, I mean, some of the stuff you talk about in, in, in the in the intro to your book and this one student who was involved in the service, but yeah, but that's not, that's so boring. I want something. What, what am I going to, what am I going to die for? But yeah, that's just, who cares about things like that? And Crystal said, you know, I had a lame answer, but then another student who was child of immigrants came up to him at the same student and said, no, this is something worth it. I mean, you don't understand how great you have it here. Like I, I that the fact that I can choose my educational norms, I can choose where I'm going to live. I can pursue this. My parents give me this, like these things, you know, it's interesting how much is taken for granted, right? About you know the the American project and just how 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 now these these freedoms seem boring. Yeah. <laughs> I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it? 
because of the conversations you find here. If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month? Or more, it's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcasts, projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Samantha Blythe, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Barry Stewart, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Crest, Stephen Rowe, Ben DeHart, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jennifer Underwood, Kai Whitpenig, Simone Garabedian, Jim Kirk, Samantha Konauer, and Jordan DeMaze. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show. Well, and talking about the church reminds me of uh, Nancy Hightower's essay. Right, right, where she calls on the literary people to be better evangelicals. Yeah, right, right. She does. And she, she talks about three institutions in her life, the academy, the church, she's evangelical in the literary world. And she's talking about white supremacy in each of those places and how sometimes people talk a good game and yet mastheads remain white or um, the evangelical community is not speaking out on behalf of um, people of color and immigrants and really wrestling with that as a Christian. And I mean, just knowing her personally, I know her heart is broken because she doesn't see her community behaving the way she, it seems like a Christian should. Yeah. And even in American history, you had, it's interesting when you look at, say, the 19th century and early 20th century evangelicals. I mean, they were, you had lots of them involved in women's suffrage and, you know, it, they were abolitionists in the middle of the 19th century. A lot of them, you know, the, the, this, it's, it's just interesting that evangelical and conservative weren't at all, it wasn't a meaningful political thing like that. In fact, I was talking to a guy, a friend who's actually on the podcast, who's a British evangelical. And he said, you know, like in England, evangelical would not at all be political at all. Like he's, he's, my church is equally divided among uh, the conservative party, labor and liberal Democrat. It, it's, it's not, you know, it, it, none of, you wouldn't, it wouldn't, and it, you know, it wouldn't be all determinative is here. I mean, if you say you're an evangelical Christian, I mean, that's a vast majority. If you're white, a vast majority of the time, that's like a cultural identity marker, right? A social political, it's almost more political these days than theological. Yeah. It seems like everything is identity politics. <laughs> and you know, the, the groups that tend to um, decry identity politics are just engaging in it too, in a different way. You know, white identity politics is is a thing. <laughs> right, right, and do you, it's interesting. Do you see? It almost seems like you have a threat to the American ideal and a sort of far right and far left wing populism, right? Like the the right wing populism is nationalist. It's sort of blood soil. It's it's not sort of it's not liberal in the Enlightenment sense. And it seems like there's also a sort of fringe left populism that's sort of like the it, it's the people that don't think a conservative should speak on campuses or things like this. There's a kind of that where it almost seems like you need a new uh, inclusive advocacy for the Enlightenment liberal project. <laughs> I think, you know, I, I do think about that whole um, 
issue of the intolerant left on campuses. And I think this is just my take and I'm not, I mean, I am teaching on campuses now, but I don't come in contact with this phenomenon. I think it's kind of overblown and I, but it's it interesting. It is probably that, sensational. It is definitely I think sensationalized. It's sensationalized. Yeah. And I think it's also, you know, college students tend to take things to extremes, but I think it's kind of a good thing to wrestle with. I'm not saying that people always get it right, but we're trying to decide, you know, what, what is civil? What do we accept as part of our civil society? You know, are we deciding that, you know, racism is something that we don't accept? If Richard Spencer wants to come to our campus and espouse white supremacist views, can we as a society say, of course, we value free speech, but that is outside the bounds of what a conversation should be? Well, I, so if I, I take like I saw Ben Shapiro on Bill Maher there and I, I don't. I find Ben Shapiro, I mean, for our listeners that don't know who he is, it's a, the rage among conservatives is a young kind of conservative media star. I, you know, I, I find Ben Shapiro just, you know, not my cup of tea. Uh, and I, I sometimes listen to conservative radio just to kind of tune in things. But like, but, so it's not, it's just like, I find it. But, you know, when a guy like that gets, de- gets decried on a campus, about half the country agrees with him on a lot of things. You know, so so is, is the danger like, hey, how are you better evangelicals? If it's part of the, the evangelism part is, you know, you're able to take an idea and make it persuasive to people who don't yet agree. So if, if, if somebody isn't attuned to at least what somebody like Ben Shapiro sounds like, then how do they then dialogue with half the country that really finds him the rage? So I think this is a, the problem that a lot of writers are wrestling with, which is how to have a conversation and how to have a conversation when not every participant is acting in good faith. I think that's what we come up against a lot. And while wow, you'll hardly ever hear me say both sides, <laughs> because I think both sidesism has gone completely haywire. But um, yeah, there's not two sides to every story. Sometimes there's one, sometimes exactly. there's 18. But I think everything is so dialed up right now and so intense and, um, and rightfully so, there are human rights abuses going on in this country and, you know, threats to our democratic norms. So we should be um, angry and we should be passionate about that. But at the same time, yes, it is very hard to have um, a conversation when uh, we also don't all have the same facts. And some of us are drawing on um, sources or conspiracies that, I don't know, were generated from Russia. <laughs> or are coming from a network that's basically a propaganda arm of the GOP, um, Fox News, (laughs) as if anybody was wondering which network I was talking about. Um, I thought you were talking about PBS. Yeah, PBS. (laughs) So propaganda arm of something else. So that's also a real impediment to conversation when we don't even, we're not even arguing about the same things. It is interesting with Fox News. I often challenge, uh, I I watch a lot of Fox News just because I try to, I want to understand like what's going on in that part part of the commentary. And and also as Jon Stewart says, they do great television. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like our like liberals, horror movies are liberals ruining america <laughs> oh maybe they are maybe they aren't like you're gonna hear an open day <laughs> yeah, let's find do. out yeah it's just fantastic but you know i always challenge my friends like watch chuck todd on meet the press no chuck todd probably isn't a conservative or republican he's totally fair i mean he asks questions that are really hard to people of all sides so you can have a point of view and be fair you know that, that you can go have it and i would say in chris wallace's defense on uh, fox news sunday he's the, he's the standout like that show 
is generally as fair or he's a, as any of the network Sunday morning shows, you know? And so I think that that, but it's almost like Fox trades on the narrative that we have to convince people that those people can't be fair so that then we can then be the counterpoint. So it's, so if they're fair, then we're extreme. But if, they, if we can say that they're the state news network, then we can be, you know, it's just, it, it trades on such an art on it. Well, maybe less than artful narrative, but one that I think people find compelling. I think narrative is the exact right word because it's not like you have different journalists who are all investigating the same story. I think there are many times where at least I see this on Twitter, people talking about how, you know, CNN, all of these other networks are covering one story. But if it's a story that's not favorable to Trump, Fox News will not cover it. Um, not to just spend time bashing Fox News because that's a low hanging fruit. Maybe, but, <laughs> but just to come back to this idea of how do we um, reach people who disagree with us? And people have been asking us that at book events. I say, I don't know. And I think it's just becoming harder. And it's becoming harder because um, because of identity and tribalism. Our identities are so bound up in you know, the group we're a part of and what we're supposed to believe that it's not just that someone might challenge your ideas. It's like they're challenging who you are. Yeah, right. I mean, I mean, that's it. it, it yeah, it is interesting because there's a there's an author in the book. I know her name is Casey, but she had said, you know, she was talking on the, about the relationship with you know, her six year old son and her father, who's a Trump supporter in the subsequent in the in the, in the months leading up to the election and how that. Even after the election, that their relationship is her hope. You know. That- yeah. Well, her father, that Bassie Ickpe wrote about her father, who was an Obama, an early Obama supporter, and her son. And then Sarah Rose Eder wrote about her own relationship with her father, who is a Trump supporter, and what that looked like after the election. Oh, okay. I think I'm confused. Yeah. I just morphed the two essays. Yeah. I, I'm <laughs> They're both great third, essays. I'm writing a fiction essay in my mind where these... You that would be a good story, though. <laughs> right, yeah, right. You know, it is interesting that, like, how many people, how many people are close to somebody and have a warm relationship with somebody that, that is markedly different, right? I mean, it's almost like we... It, first off, we self-sort so much just geographically, right? Like more and more certain kinds of people live here and certain kinds of people live there. And then with social media and other things, like you, you continue to self-sort and self-sort and self-sort. So, I mean, I, I wonder part of just, I mean, I don't know if you know Jonathan Haidt's work, um, The Righteous Mind, he's a moral psychologist. And interesting, he just says basically, you know, we have these preferences and they're psychological. I mean, like liberals, like when they do dots on, you know, this analysis of dots they're looking at, Liberals like chaotic ones. Conservatives like they're in order. In general, conservatives like to eat at similar restaurants more than liberals do. And all these kinds of, you know, he talks about how they're different sort of, he calls them moral psychological taste buds and how like basically everybody kind of agrees on some level of fairness and compassion. Um, uh, and there's two other ones, fairness, compassion. There's another one. But then conservatives kind of cling to these um, purity and respect for authority, which kind of get under liberal skin. And, and, and these things are just psychologically, before you're even arguing, it, it's sort of at the sort of pre-theoretical level. And so it's almost like everything is so emotionally loaded, right? It also makes me wonder what comes first. Are you drawn to, um, is it inborn that you like the dots in a straight line? Or does that come about because you are maybe in an environment that is privileging conservative rhetoric and vice versa? And he doesn't think that these things can't change. He just thinks that like, well, if for instance, like, you know, he talked about climate change and he says, well, it's so much. So if you want, you know, often liberals ask me like, well, how do you get through? He's like, well, get a Pentagon general to talk about it. 
you know, because that's not a lefty oh, hippie. You know, this I mean, is, that's an authority. Right. Like yeah. It's an authority and someone that, you know, or he, he says the problem with dialogue groups too, like let's say you're talking Israel, Palestine, or I, I love John, John Oliver says, uh, Israel, the one issue you want to bring up, uh, if you want to have an agreement at a party where everyone politically is of the same party. <laughs> but if you talk, if people were debating Israel, Palestine or, or reproductive rights or something, see, I saw that like basically when I'm making my arguments, right, I'm not making them to persuade the other person. I'm making them to my own tribe to tell them I'm on the team. Right. You're virtue signaling to your own tribe. And so it's just why like cable news gets so nauseating. It just makes you emotional. Like, ah, because it's or or it soothes you if, if it's, you know, if you're a liberal at MSNBC, if it's Fox, if you're and I guess if you're really, really unpercolated drink decaf PBS, you know, <laughs> right, right. And yeah, it's a comfort food, right? Also, I think we're still talking about um, not just you and I, but in the larger conversation, we say, why can't Republicans and Democrats or conservatives and liberals get along as if it's a policy discussion? When I think that what is driving Trumpism is um, racism and misogyny. And there was all this talk about, you know, economic insecurity and then polls and studies that were done after the election to show that economic insecurity was not driving Trump voters. It's the nationalism, to come back to what we were talking about earlier. It's fear of the other, which he loves to drum up. Um, you know, there's all of his his hateful acts and talks about women. And that's something that Lynn Melnick writes about. Go back to the book because I'm pitching the book. Um, she writes a poem about that and what it felt like to live through a campaign like that and then to live through an election and she has two daughters where a man who admitted to sexual assault gets all of those votes. And how does that leave a young girl or a woman feeling to know that their humanity has been so discounted? And I think that that's something that also makes conversation difficult. Because if I think, well, this person over here, it's not just that we disagree on policy. It's that they don't see me as fully human. And I have to be over here fighting for my own humanity. How do you have that conversation? Yeah. And, and I wonder how also... The, you, I had a guy on the podcast last week or two weeks ago who wrote this great book called Vanishing Borders and all about the Mexico-U.S. relationship and how it's extremely advantageous to both countries and all the, I mean, it's a fascinating book and it's well-written journalistically too, but it's just a wonderful book. He was saying though that, you know, all right, if you're the person, that, for instance, that lives in this town and the air conditioner plant moved to yeah okay you lost directly but most of the time you lost the automation and other things like that but it's hard to get people rallied up around automation and creative destruction and how these things will eventually the aggregate gains are going to help everybody like you can get them you can turn that anger on immigrants or women you know or how wow if i was in a previous generation you know and the workplace was you know as it got as a certain kind of per person in the demographically i'd be more respected and, and that's you can channel that right i mean you can't channel the i mean i guess you can channel a little bit of the anti-globalization too but it's generally like you can't policies don't make people that passionate right it it it's when you can tell a story where there's a good guy and a bad guy, and a, a villain, you know, victims and victimization. That's how people get impassioned. And a villain who looks different from you. Yes. You know, has a, has different customs. Their food smells different. Um, but I think, you know, we can turn it around the other way and say building a relationship is something that can then change policy. And I know when we see the speed um, that the LGBT Q community has um, been able to attain rights, and I know not enough, and um, that's all threatened now. But, but ha definitely the most effective human rights campaign, like if you had told me when that 
sort of when that organization like really like the, like the human rights uh, organ- uh, human uh, rights campaign. Yeah, human rights. If you would have told me how effective it was that quickly going on the front end, I would have been skeptical. Just be, and, and they, it's been incredibly effective. Just again, by what you're saying, re- relation. It's hard. Yeah, because when you love somebody or you know somebody, um, your point of view changes. They're not, you know, like the boogeyman anymore. They're your sister, your neighbor, your coworker, and um, you know, I, I mean, that's a sort of a heartwarming example. Of course, people have to put themselves on the line for that. And if you're the first person to come out of the closet or you're coming out of the closet in a certain environment, you know, you're, you could be suffering. You're putting yourself at risk. Um, so it's not an easily won benefit either. Yeah. It takes a lot of courage on the people to, the, the costs are often paid, right? By the people that, and the benefits strings are often won by the people that are accepting, right? Because then their lives get less stressful yes. and their social network widens and they, yeah, I mean, that's a, it's a hard, it's a hard sell often but thank god for the people that are courageous and engage in it so you have this essay in here where somebody the author is escaping now he wrote about time about just ken calvin i love this he, he just writes about like this one week in june and all the stuff that happened and, and talking about how time has changed and it is a fascinating development now that that i mean i often like watch one of the shows i like a lot is nicole wallace's show at four o'clock on msnbc and, and they very often great panels and stuff but they're like i was sure we'd be talking or, or i remember somebody was saying i'm shocked we're still talking about uh the children in these cages because just you know just because the way the news cycle goes, I'm surprised this is more than a three day story. Sadly, you know, like uh, uh, that 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 these and so he maps out like what it's like. Oh, this happened today, and then the Russia investigation, then this, and so I mean, it is amazing how and exhausting how the news comes at us now. Uh, I mean, this is the, the nickname, right? No drama, Obama. I mean, there is something that that's nice about when the government's just kind of working, and you're not. It's not the big story every day, but it's. It seems like every day there's these dramatic stories, right? And it's emotionally tasking to just follow the news. And part of that, I think, is just the media environment we live in and the people are looking for ratings and sensational stories. I think in the the days that he chronicles, you get there's the shooting of the congressional baseball game. There's the Julius Caesar uh, controversy, if anybody even remembers that, because now it seems so far away, even though it was. Right, where were that? They, they were they made Trump was Caesar when they yeah they in effigy and in, in right play. There is the Grenfell Tower in London and probably like ten other things that all happen in these three days. But also from what I read, it seems this is not um this is also not accidental. This is a tactic of a government that needs to keep people unsettled. I think that's something that Trump sort of feels instinctively. Like earlier, I was talking about being an armchair psychologist. I don't think there's a lot of strategy. I think there's instinct and. He was on reality TV and he likes the big story. I mean, even now he treats his announcements that way. We're waiting for a Supreme Court nominee. And he's like, well, we'll see in a few days. There'll be an announcement. It's going to be somebody out of central casting. Wink, wink. Um, and it does. Keep but how if, if central casting is, is, the, is the model? How does John Bolton get through with that mustache? <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying, I mean, I have no problem with mustaches and I I don't think government should be central casting. But if we were, at least on central casting scores, we'd make him shave the mustache. He kind of looks like a central casting villain, maybe. Yes. Or somebody the villain would go to for a super weapon. Like, you know, like (laughs) Like the Q. Yeah, he's not the the sort of main villain, but he's a sort of side nefarious and skeevy actor. Not to stereotype people with mustaches. No, there's some great mustaches. (laughs) Yeah. You know, but uh, benevolent mustaches. Benevolent, but that's not. That doesn't seem to be one of them. No. <laughs> no, 
but I do think you're right about that. And, you know, this is where I think tr- Trumpism is a psychological movement, right? It's not, I mean, he's not a chess player. He's got no vision for the country. He's got no, but he does emotionally appeal to, he's good at emotional appeal stuff, right? And so you can get certain disenfranchised groups that have real problems, right? Like, and you can get them to sort of fixate. On, well, here's the answer. So it, I mean, this is classic fascism, right? Well, the problem is those people over there, and you know, you misdirect and then you're going to get people's passions going that way. So I, I, th- I think as I was reading this and, and there's some really talented writers, I mean, in this collection it's, and the genres too, some of the poetry is fabulous. I mean, they're prose things are excerpts from short stories or short stories, excerpts from fiction books. I wonder, is there a risk for an artist anytime you, you resistance becomes an end or, you know, the political or moral thing becomes an end versus something kind of baked partially in the cake. I mean, is there, I mean, cause generally when something's very moralistic, we know it as the receptor of the art. I mean, and it's kind of like, well, I don't know. Like, I feel like I'm kind of being shouted at and told what to do. Like, yeah, you can tell that they're trying to get a message across rather right. than telling a story or, um, but honestly, I think great artists recognize that even in times of relative peace, all art is political because all art is reflecting on the human experience in society. And it's either challenging that or it's upholding the status quo. And those are both political points of view. Um, so I think the writers in this book, many of them were are writing directly toward um, Trumpism and Trumpism that predates Trump. You know, we talked about racism and um prejudice and things like that. Uh, But they're all, I think what makes it different is the voice. It's their point of view. It's their experience. And they can capture that as great writers and tell you not a message, but an experience. And you can find the message in that. Yeah, that's where the piece we're last talking about. I, I found that so compelling, largely because I've had that experience. Like it, it was really great prose writing that teased out an experience that I know many friends have had too, where I, you're just exhausted and you, it's hard to process. It's, it's like a completely different set of, you know, neural receptors or something or new, new coping mechanisms have to be developed because it's just a lot, you know, yeah. to, to handle. It's a very 21st century or 2017, 2018 kind of experience. And then you have someone like Ganzier who wrote the um, future science fiction story about the um, alien immigration. Oh, yeah, the, the aliens, and they're in like the prison on the moon. Yeah, they're in a prison in the moon. And he himself um, sought asylum. He's originally from Egypt and he left because he was... Um, being persecuted politically for his art and came here. And he writes about that experience, but he twists it. So he takes us to another like century, another place. He takes us to the moon, which is a sort of a classic science fiction thing that science fiction um, and fantasy are always changing the world so they can write about this world sort of sneakily. Right. I mean, this is the, the great, I mean, the reason why science fiction works, right, is it's basically the presupposition that human nature doesn't change all that much. Right. So that so that way you can sort of give people like warp drives and and communicators and phasers. And yet we'll still recognize the, you know, it, it's fate with a little bit of fashion twists. Right. It's yeah. Just, I mean, <laughs> like that. That's why it works. Right. Yeah. And that's what was so fun about this book is getting so many different genres together. You know, we want to get a diverse collection of contributors, but diversity didn't stop at things like your national or ethnic background or your gender or sexuality. We wanted to get diverse kinds of writers. We have cartoons in there. We have novel excerpts. We have, you know, very serious, thoughtful essays. And I mean, all of that, I think, also gives it a feeling of dynamism that we felt back at Writers Resist and that we think reflects America and all its diversity today. 
Yeah, and also I, I think it's also a great piece for somebody that's just looking to get more aware of the contemporary writing scene. You, you know, you might discover some, I mean, I certainly did, discover some people that I hadn't read before that I want to read more of. So it's a great collection of really great writers. And so, you know, because not, everyone not everyone's reading literary magazines all the time, reviews and stuff. So there are great writers out there that just because of limited time, you know, you often don't discover. But here's a nice collection of essays that are is incredibly timely and also could help people sort of develop their own literary path. Yeah, and I think there are readers that will never pick up a book of poetry or readers will never pick up a book of essays, but it's all here for you and you can rediscover why all of those forms are so great. Who's your dream reader for this? If you could imagine somebody that you wish would read it, like, is it somebody that needs sort of emboldened or somebody that you'd like to persuade or somebody who like... This is not maybe a great answer, but the more that I write and the more I publish, the less I think about the reader. Um, for this particular book, it was important to, I think, bring all of these different voices together and whoever comes to it and however they come to it. Like, I think there are people who are going to pick it up because they're going to see one of these names on the cover. And think, oh, I like this person. Um, or this person is my mom's cousin's friend. So I'm going to read it and then see what else is in here. I hope that the reader is surprised a little bit and challenged a little bit and also definitely emboldened. You know, I go back to our protest and how people needed to feel community. And I think this is a way to feel community in a book. Okay. It's no, it's November, you know, 2020. Trump wins re-election. Are you organizing another protest or are you passed out with a battle of Jack Daniels and I, you can't go on? Uh, I think we can't wait for another protest. And this is also, we're recording this right after the Families Belong Together protest. And I think the protests, the demonstrations and other kinds of protests, whether it's, you know, gathering with your neighbors, with your signs, or it's climbing the Statue of Liberty in your pink sneakers, like a brave soul did this past weekend. Um, it all has to continue in all forms constantly because there's a lot of damage that is being done right now and that will continue to be done. And if 2020 comes, I hope that we're all like, Okay, we're ready for this. We're feeling, you know, like when you're training for a marathon, so you get into really good shape. We need to like stay in good protesting shape and civil disobedience shape. So that when that, if that time comes, you know, we're all ready to go. That's, those are words to live by. And there are many other words to live by and to be inspired by and to think on. In this book, Who Will Speak for America? Stephanie, thanks for talking about it with me on the podcast. Thank you. This was great. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you've found it here. Also, if you could go, please, please, please. It takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks again to Stephanie for coming on the podcast. Do check out Who Will Speak for America. It's full of great pieces of writing. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.